back to another episode of Public Problems. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. Before I introduce this episode, I wanted to give you a brief update on Season 2 and a new podcast series. This is Episode number 9 for Season 2. There will be one more conversation, which will be Episode number 10. And then following that, I will release uh, a a concluding episode recapping some of the themes from this season. We'll be doing a Season 3. It will be released as an entire album at the end of the year. More conversations with researchers on public problems. And in the meantime, I'll be working on a new podcast series. This series will be called Solving Public Problems, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, and will be broadcasted from the Public Problems channel. This will be an examination of the impact of the Fourth Industrial Revolution on humanity and will hopefully add to the discussion on how best to use policy tools and governance strategies to minimize the harm the the Fourth Industrial Revolution could do to society while maximizing the potential benefits of the advancements that come along with that revolution. The first episode will be published August 15, and I hope you'll check it out. Now on to this episode. It is titled The War on Drugs which is a serious public problem. With the researchers, we discuss the history of the war on drugs, how drugs are regulated, discrimination in the enforcement of drug policies, how other countries have had success regulating drugs, and what should be the aim of drug regulation. There's a lot here. We wade into some pretty challenging topics. But I hope you find the conversation informative and interesting. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. Today, we'll be talking about the war on drugs. Um, Today, again, also we are with a group of master students that are getting their master's in public service and administration at the Bush School of Government and Public Service. Um, They also had a course with me in the fall of 2017 where they uh, had the opportunity to pick any public problem that they thought was pressing and important and spend half a semester researching in teams of five and six. So before we get started, I'd like to give the group an opportunity to um, introduce themselves. You're gonna be hearing from a number of different voices. So let's go ahead and take care of that first. Hello, I'm Courtney Tian. I'm Morgan Lowe. I'm Court Mansky. I'm Karen Weinman. I'm Sydney Serza. And I'm Muriel Pinnell. Oh, y'all nailed that. Sounding sharp this morning. <laughs> All right, so, um, the war on drugs, what do you mean by this in your report? What are we talking about here? So in regards to the war on drugs, uh, if we look at it from a historical perspective, the beginning as anyone would know it is a uh, Richard Nixon speech in 1971 where he comes onto the television and tells America that public enemy number one is drugs and that uh, United States domestic policy is going to change insofar as the Controlled Substances Act had already been passed, the DEA would be created very recently, and uh, a lot of resources resources would go to tackling the supply side of the drug problem, uh, both in the United States and abroad. Uh, So it really began with Nixon. Yeah, uh, at least the formal war on drugs as we know it today. Now, through our research, the war on drugs in the United States, in, in a less formal way, has been waging since the beginning of the 20th century. Um, The first really big drug prohibition act that caused backlash that, uh, you know, really affected addicts and people and was widely enforced is that Harrison Narcotics Act of 1914. Um, The 
it, it, it meant widespread widespread backlash across the country. It's the first drug law where physicians were no longer allowed to temper people off of opiates uh, as part of a prescription for treating addiction. And so when the law was passed, all addicts of any drug were now forced to find their drug in any mean they could. Uh, spikes of crime. Uh, you can see letters from a variety of police chiefs noting these problems throughout history. Uh, so drug prohibition has been going on for over 100 years, but the war on drugs in a public sense, in a political sense, where presidents come on the television has only been in the last 50 years or so. And so it started, um, so there's a whole history of drug prohibition and and sort of failed policies around that. Um, but the former war on drugs kind of started in the 70s under Nixon. So how has it, um, how has it shifted over time since Nixon? I mean, was it, did it carry on under Reagan and Clinton? Um, what, uh, and Jimmy Carter, um, so has it kind of consisted over time or has it had new flavors? What, what does it kind of look like? Well, it, it's largely uh, remained dramatically the same. Uh, since Nixon came out with the Controlled Substances Act, that's still the framework that we use today to schedule drugs uh, and determine how dangerous or whether there's medical usage. If anything, the war on supply has only intensified. If you look at the DEA budget uh, 40 years ago, the number of employees, all of those numbers have skyrocketed. Uh, in the Reagan administration, we saw uh, penalties for drug-related offenses climb with the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Uh, in the Clinton administration, we have the three strikes policy come where if you're using a drug that results in a felony crime, which is most illicit drugs, uh, and you, you go to jail, you come out, you do it again, you go to jail, you come out, you do it again. The third time you're going to jail, you're going to jail for the rest of your life. So really the trajectory since the 70s has only been one of further punishment, further enforcement to attack the supply. Um, and that's how we've gotten to our modern day. So tell me, uh, you mentioned the drugs being on a schedule. Um, everyone may not know what the drug schedule is. And I think it's, it's going to be an important piece for thinking about a, a, a rational drug policy is the is thinking through why we might assign drugs to different schedules and how they might fit in that way. So tell me, and for listeners who don't aren't aware of the drug schedule and how that works, could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so drug scheduling is part of the Controlled Substances Act. And it was created as a way to categorize drugs in accordance to their potential for abuse and whether or not there's any acceptable medical use for the drug. So Schedule 1 drugs, um, they have the highest potential for abuse, um, possibility for dependence, and they have no accepted medical use. So we have uh, a few drugs on that, but the one that we focus on mostly is marijuana on Schedule 1, and then it goes so down. So, sorry to interrupt. Um, the Schedule 1 is there's no uh, medicinal purposes is kind of the yes. standard there. Okay? No known medicinal purposes. And highly addictive. And highly addictive. And that's Schedule 1. Okay? And do you know the categories? Do you have a, a, in front of you or do you remember the, the different classifications that we use? Well, I don't have that document. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so that's that's schedule one, and then as it goes to higher numbers like two, three, and four, then it's less restrictive, seen as less dangerous. Mm -hmm. There's weaker mm -hmm. penalties for using it, and so, but so like the what what are the other classifications? So like I said, schedule one has marijuana, heroin, LSD, MDMA, and then goes on two through five. Um, so lowering in potential of abuse and more accepted medical use as you go down two through five. So 
examples of Schedule II drugs would be like oxycodone, like Oxycontin and Percocet, Dilaudid, Hydrocodone, Fentanyl, and even Adderall, which is something that people don't really realize. Um, schedule three, uh, things like Tylenol with Cody in it, so like more mixes, not pure stuff. Um, schedule four, common prescriptions like Xanax, Valium, Valium, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. And schedule five, um, think of the cough medicine that has codeine in it, um, Robitussin, and stuff that you get from your doctor when you have a cold. Kind of basic over-the-counter things. Yes. Yeah. So four and five, about around there, starts to become over-the-counter. Mm-hmm. One is sort of the most dangerous, uh, most highly addictive, no uses. Um, and Schedule 2 sounds like it could be things that are addictive, but that have some medicinal use. Um, okay, so I think that gives us uh, some framework that we're going to be talking through. So thanks for that. Um, what um, Are there other pieces of kind of the war on drugs that we haven't touched on that you think is 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 important so it's been go prohibition's been going on since the early 1900s in some way or another we had prohibition of alcohol in the early 1900s that was an unsuccessful effort um and then you have nixon um focusing on a war on drugs maybe that's a good place to go which is why why did nixon in the 70s decide that there needed to be like a war on drugs was drug crime sort of skyrocketing was there something that triggered um nixon uh in the 70s specifically as as waging war on drugs what's kind of the impetus for that well um it's not uh too pretty at least what our research has shown shown so far um what leads us to say this is that one drug laws were already strict in the united states uh People would go to jail for a very long time. There was little opportunity for probation. Um, but what makes the Nixon administration particularly incriminated is a 1994 interview from Nixon's domestic policy chief, where, wherein he says that the Nixon campaign had two enemies, uh, the anti-war left and black people. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pulling up the quote now. Uh, it's, we knew we couldn't make the drugs illegal to either, we knew it could make, couldn't make it illegal to either be against the war, uh, the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Um, there's been some controversy from uh, the domestic policy chief's family saying we don't think that our father would say this, um, but we have no reason to believe that the interviewer is pretty widely shared and generally accepted amongst uh, some of the people in the Nixon administration that this was in fact uh, the tactic and what was going on. If anything, what Nixon showed to Reagan, to Clinton, to H.W. Bush, to any of the presidents that followed is that Drugs and crime were a salient issue that you could get up on the television if you were currently experiencing some sort of gaffe or some uh, there was bad press about you. Get on the TV and tell everyone that you're attacking public enemy number one, you're attacking drugs and the bad drug users who use them. Um, and the silent majority are those who've been fed, uh, I guess we'll talk about propaganda a little later. Um, you know. They uh, support you. They they come out in droves. Yeah, I mean, it seems um, it seems like the evidence for so. I mean, uh, the evidence for it, I think, is pretty generally accepted among mainstream historians now. Would be my guess. Um, 
think the evidence is pretty clear that the Nixon administration targeted both the kind of the hippie movement and targeted black communities. I think the evidence is, I mean, it's kind of, uh, I'm sure not everyone's aware of it, but I think the evidence is, for it is, is pretty clear. And the way in which it was enforced, as I'm sure we'll talk about, was certainly along racial lines, right? And so I know that a piece of this is the discrimination and the enforcement of these rules. So. What type of evidence do we have for that? Could you tell me about that? Um, well, I could just say uh, really quickly that some of the historical connections between race and ethnicity has been because of the war on drugs, and specifically because of some of the legal protections that were originally designed to curtail the police departments in certain areas. And so you kind of see some of these implications that are starting, and um, because of it, it's specifically targeting black communities and resulting in policing and racism. And um, this has been going on since uh, certain acts and um, tactics that were used, like the SWAT team that would sometimes break into these communities and go into different homes. Mm -hmm. And that creates an environment that, of course, is leading to violence already. And um, I think specifically um, one of the things that we talk about in our, our report, as far as the drug-related violence goes, is just the simple fact that um, this was during a period of time where heinous crimes were being done, but were connected to uh, drug gangs. However, that evidence wasn't uh, specifically uh, accommodated to the findings that the policies that were impacting drug laws were actually credited to reducing drug use. And so um, what we're experiencing here is that we're crediting drug violence uh, to these drug gangs, but we're not necessarily looking at the, the problem, which is the policy. And when you're having research done on all of these different facets, all of these different um, communities trying to figure out like how to get rid of these drug use, but you're not necessarily looking at the, the issue, which is the policy that is around the reason why these drug use are, um, are still available even today, then the violence continues. Mm -hmm. And it's mainly because not necessarily of the, the gains um, from the research that I've done, but specifically because of the policy that some of some of the laws that have been passed to specifically target those black communities and those communities that um, were targeted with drugs. I mean, I think it's a, um, at least from the evidence, I think it's fairly uncontroversial that there's a, an enforcement issue broadly in policing across racial lines. Um, and drugs seem to kind of have been where this began, um, or, or not really began, but really ramped up in sort of a militarized fashion. Um, so what, do I know um, one thing, uh, sort of one sort of classic example of racial disparities across uh, drug enforcement is the uh, way in which crack and cocaine were uh, sentenced um, during the, the kind of sur surgence of those drugs. So tell me, is that something y'all encountered in your research and could you tell me a little bit about that? So, um... This dates back to the Reagan administration's Anti-Drug Abuse Act. Um, in that law, possession of five grams of crack cocaine uh, would lead you to a minimum of five years in prison without pop, uh, any chance of parole. Um, that's a mandatory minimum offense, so if you are found with it, you're facing at least five years in jail with no opportunity for other offense. Uh, whereas on the cocaine side of things, um, in order to have the mandatory minimum of five years in prison without possibility of parole, you had to have 500 grams of cocaine, um, which is a 100 to 1 disparity. Now, in the Obama administration, that disparity was reduced to 18 to 1, 
um, in the Fair Sentencing Act. But in 2002, 80% of those prosecuted for crack possession were black, while cocaine is still widely a, a white people drug. So uh, the evidence is pretty clear there, uh, and it's definitely very disappointing. Understanding, too, with um, not just the crack and cocaine in the black community, but also with earlier with cannabis in the Hispanic community, right? Is, isn't it true that that's why it was given the name marijuana? To, I mean, it sounds Spanish, <laughs> and it was an attempt to label uh, migrants as lazy and unproductive. Um, so I think the it's not it's within the black community with the crack and cocaine divide. It's been with uh, the Hispanic community with cannabis, and so I think um, uh, those two are pretty clear examples of the way in which we handle our drug policy being at least a secondary effect of it at a minimum, and maybe the primary goal is to um, to uh, cause negative consequences to. Uh, non-white groups, for example, <laughs> particularly when we have tobacco and alcohol that we know are pretty harmful for the body in ways that cannabis, for example, is not, but widely adopted um, across, I mean, all types of communities, right? And also having uh, large sort of lobbying efforts that keep them uh, legal and um, having the ability to spend as much, you know, spend as many dollars as they do protecting those, uh, protecting those profits, right? And so it's interesting, which is a nice, I think, shift of this that I don't know how much time you spend about this in your report that, but that I would like to talk about, which is how do we even think about designing a rational drug policy? And what I mean by that is, um, I think we need to think carefully as a society about what are the reasons why we put people behind jail and what is the purpose of that. And the drug policy stuff seems to be really intimately linked with uh, the criminal justice issues in this country because it's uh, because of prohibition. Um, and so how none of this makes any sense to me, to be honest with you. I don't understand how things like cannabis are a schedule one drug. Um, and things like alcohol, which cause a lot of harm to families, which cause lots of accidents, which cause a lot of social bads, are not, not only not uh, illegal, but celebrated in culture in our society. And tobacco was for a long time um, as well. It's less so now. I mean, I think uh, cigarette companies, at least in the US, are kind of falling out of uh, power. It's not as true in developing countries, is my understanding. But I mean, we still have, uh, it's still one of the largest killers in the U.S. is lung cancer. And so I, I was wondering what you came across in trying to think through um, policies that make sense and are logical and based in some kind of ethical reasoning for how we should think about or ways to think about rational drug policy. So what did y'all come across? Well, first we defined the irrational drug policy as that the U.S. doesn't treat addiction properly and that they kind of turn a blind eye and it's more of a criminal problem rather than a global health problem and that it doesn't take into account the market forces, uh, that there's lots of misscheduling of the drugs in the Controlled, Controlled Substances Act and that the government's for, focus on reducing supply. So we used all these definitions of irrational drug policy 
to look at the current drug policy and then our recommendations of new U.S. drug policy. And so we really dove in and researched the current U.S. drug policy and found that the DEA estimates that 10% or less of drugs is captured and that we spend nearly $50 billion a year as a government trying to eradicate drugs with a 90% failure rate. And that's not very successful. Um, but it also completely ignores what we know about markets, right? right. We all have been learning about this. We talked about it in class. What happens when you attack supply? When you attack supply, what does it do? It raises price mm -hmm. and encourages and creates incentives for more people to enter into that market because the profits should be higher because the prices are higher for the same type of good. Right. And so it doesn't even come close to making sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, continue. Yep, so our the first one that we looked at was the mandatory minimums. Mandatory minimums, for those who, who don't really know, is uh, it refers to federally set prison sentences based on particular crimes and drug possessions. And they begin in 1986, and it's just a minimum length of different crimes. And the different crimes include immigration, guns, identity theft, murder and then drugs are also on the list and so we we looked a lot into that we also looked into the war on supply and that the war on supply is combated in two ways through replacement crops and then increasing harsh law enforcement and so it's based off the idea that lesser quantities of drugs reach consumers in the united states the problem would be diminished and so economically speaking the idea is it's understandable that if there's no more drugs there won't be a drug problem, but exactly what you said earlier regarding prices increasing. Um, so just realizing what we have currently and how that's not working, we came up with some solutions. We think that re researching and the use of substitutes. So for example, designer drugs. A designer drug is a new substance of a large group of synthetic and plant derivatives mimicking the effects of traditional and illicit drugs of abuse. And so, although controversial, a variety of safe substitutes would deter those using harder drugs to these safer, more controlled drugs or even able to tax. Mm -hmm. there's, there's an opportunity once we talk about substitutes to pull into some stuff that other countries are doing. Uh, Portugal mm -hmm. um, in 2001 started substituting opium with me methadone treatments. Uh, and have been really successful in getting people off of that, as well as their entire decriminalization uh, Yeah, I definitely want to talk some about what uh, what other countries have yeah. done that's more successful as well. I was um, reading an article about, like, the, there's, like, the one guy that's in charge of the one, um, like, rowing operation, and it's in Mississippi. His name is, like, George... For uh, the university. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and he, like, I was reading an article, he was mentioning, like, putting alcohol as a schedule one drug and I was trying to find it and I can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, that's not the one I don't think. Because that's what I that's what I looked at too, but I'm not sure that that's the one. Alright, go back to I mean we can continue here. Go ahead. Okay, so we have four different solutions. We we think that legalization of cannabis um, would dismantle the black market of drugs. It would improve the quality and safety of drugs in U.S. citizens. It would increase our tax revenue and improve the medical health of those with chronic diseases. And we also, by coming up with these solutions, we looked at how different countries tackle their drug problems and their drug addictions. And so we looked at Colombia and Portugal and different, different 
more innovative ideas that aren't naive and that really tackles it as an addiction problem and offers more rational like crop replacements where they allow you to still support your family but the government provides the means to do that. So by far the most innovative drug policy in the world uh, falls onto Portugal. Um, Prior to 2001, Portugal was dealing with an HIV epidemic. Um, sexually transmitted diseases were rampant. Uh, you know, drug use and addiction were, were a large problem. Uh, they came to the conclusion at the turn of the millennium that this prohibition policy in and of itself uh, was not working, or at least the criminalization associated with prohibition. So uh, Portugal went ahead and decriminalized all drugs. Uh, now, what that really means is that uh, possession is still, uh, you know, uh, unauthorized um, and, you know, growing these plants is unauthorized. Uh, but the offense has changed from a criminal one to an, administ an administrative one if less than 10 days of the drug, uh, of less than 10 days worth of that drug, uh, depending on the drug, were with the person at the time of arrest or whatever. And so uh, those arrested don't face a judge they face a panel of a lawyer, a sociologist, and a public health official. And uh, depending on the drug, depending on the situation, they work to craft solutions that help people out, that get them back on their feet. Um, the number of HIV cases in Portugal has dropped dramatically. Uh, they've seen no negative effects towards their youth and increasing in drug use since this decriminalization. Um, and as far as innovative policies go across the world, they're, they're few and far between. The majority of the world, us included, most countries still have these very restrictive drug policies that see prohibition as the path. I think Portugal is the only example in the world where uh, a full decriminalization policy has been implemented. And sure enough, it's definitely shown success for that small country. So I want to talk a little bit more about the reasons why we regulate drugs the way we do and whether that makes sense. So just talking about how Portugal, as just one example, decriminalized drugs. Um, they've seen lots of positive benefits to that and little to no negatives to that. So um, it is possible in some space to decriminalize all drugs in a society and the society not fall apart, right? Because we're watching it at least play out one case of it in, a, in one specific country. And so I think, um, Gary, you, you were talking a little bit about, um, we think about regulating, thinking about addiction and treating, um, treating drug use as an addiction rather than um, as something to be re rehabilitated as opposed to punish. And so I wanna, I wanna touch on that a little bit, which is to say, I think that's, I think that's probably, uh, clearly supported in what we know about public health and what we know about criminology and um, what we know about how um, people use drugs. And so I think at a very minimum, we can make a good argument that um, this is an addiction issue that we want to be dealing with um, and a rehabilitation issue um, um, more than it is something we want to punish, right? So. I, I completely buy that. I don't think that will be super controversial to people who think about this carefully. However, I don't think addiction is the only piece of this. 
So there, um, people use, uh, there's evidence, for example, that um, LSD and um, LSD can lead to, in controlled settings, um, uh, advances in creativity, right? Microdosing in creative offices on the West Coast is like a thing now. Um, and using uh, cannabis, for example, to treat things like anxiety and pain also allows for human growth and human development. And so I was wondering what kind of thoughts you all had or things you've maybe talked about in your paper or just from your research um, is, are people talking about whether government should even be bothering regulating different types of kind of conscious experiences for lack of better words? I mean, why, what's the point of restricting those things if, it, if we know that at least in some spaces Right, it actually improves human fulfillment, human capacity. So did you come across any reasoning on that? One of the big problems that we did identify and why this problem persists is the disregard for research. Even for facilities who are conducting this research, they're having trouble getting a license to have access to these drugs. So um, there was research done on LSD that it helped alcoholism, depression, and you know, boosted creativity and stuff like that in controlled settings. Um, but whenever it was made illegal, um, it was no longer being researched. And so that's been the problem with cannabis too, yeah, right? The one grower in Mississippi exactly. is the one place researchers can get access to it to even do trial studies. Right. And then, I mean, all other drugs too, like, like you said, cannabis and then, um, MDMA was a miracle drug for testing PTSD and things that this um, article I read that said it had potential for treating Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. or people who suffer with that. And, but without the license to do these researches, um, we aren't able to Have even see the potential of these medical uses. But, and that leads back to, back to the prohibition is people not only don't have the potential medical uses, but they're misusing these drugs because they aren't in controlled settings. They aren't in, you know, they don't see the potential and if they just use it because they have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's going to become an interesting ethical issue that we're going to have to wrestle with as a society. There's a lot of work in uh, neuroscience and neuroethics now for understanding sort of the neural correlates of consciousness and trying to figure out uh, different ways to adjust conscious experience. And that can be done chemically. Um, clearly, it can be done through natural substances or through things that are designed. And I think it's an open question, or at least it should be an open question for society, is what types of conscious experiences um, should the government even be regulating? Now, when there's clear harm, like alcohol, maybe there's a good um, reason to be restrictive. But a lot of these designer drugs and a lot of things like cannabis, it's not clear that there are um, serious negative externalities to families or to society. And society is already comfortable with alcohol, which we know has serious negative externalities to society. And so if that is the measure, it doesn't make any sense to me why these other drugs that don't have the same level of negative externalities as, uh, alco as alcohol does are uh, prohibited. It doesn't make makes sense to me. Well, if anything, like the prohibition makes it even have more negative impact because, I mean, just like with the whole alcohol and moonshine, people created moonshine because it was a pure substance and it was easier to mm -hmm. um, 
travel. I mean, mm-hmm. whenever they were being had had a band and it was hard to um, export it from one place to another. Um, so that's what happened here. And the only people who are really benefiting from prohibition are cartels who, regardless of U.S. policy, they're going to be making the stuff. They're going to be selling the stuff because there's demand for it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the big problem here is regardless of who's supplying it, it's going to be in circulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the piece of it, you know, to talking about some of the market pieces <laughs> that it just seems like in other ways we really get markets in the U.S. I mean, it's, we kind of in some ways worship markets um, and they do a lot of good, right? They do a uh, a good job allocating lots of different things but then when it comes to drug policy it's like we turn that part of our analytical brain off and it's just like no it's it's all horrible we should prohibit it in which this doesn't make a lot of sense so um okay can we talk a little bit more what other other than portugal are uh, any other countries taking not completely what, what kind of approaches are other countries taking that are maybe better or worse than prohibition so Colombia is facing a really large uh, policy change right now. There's a big deal with the FARC and the in the Colombian government. The FARC's the armed forces with a really violent. Well, Colombia is really no, is known for for growing and exporting drugs to the mm-hmm. United States, mm-hmm. and so they had this new peace agreement where the towns in the country was so sick of violence and murder happening on their streets every day because of this drug issue and all the cartels within the country the government just decided that they value safety and they value nonviolence over drugs and the mentality towards drugs so what colombia did was they they approached all the suppliers and all the farmers and they said, hey, we, we understand that that's where your income comes from, is growing all these different types of drugs. So we're going to give you a different different type of good to grow instead. We'll pay you to grow something else instead. Right. Um, so it's a really large expenditure of the government doing this, but it's worth it in the long term because they're not having to deal with all the different criminal, criminal expenses instead. And so Colombia is just being a lot more rational and they're allowing their criminals to be introduced back into society and they're giving everybody a second chance and they said like we've realized that this is this was a huge issue and this is a big part of our history but no matter what you were doing before we're cleaning your record we are helping all out now and we want you to be productive members of society Mm -hmm. whether that's going to be like you're a great seller so you're going to sell clothes or you're going to sell more technology so just introducing different substitutes in that market and having that forgiveness and having that mentality that you're not a morally bad person because you were doing drugs you're not morally bad because you were in a cartel you were simply trying to feed your family and so just having those substitutes and just not being naive about it Mm -hmm. i think is what columbia is facing right now that's helping them a lot so um Let's bring it back to the U.S. context and talk a little bit more about um, the enforcement of this and then a little bit more about maybe some of the racial disparities because my understanding of this uh, is um, my understanding of this is that the U.S. isn't really naive, which is the word we've been using. Mm -hmm. 
um, that it's maybe a little bit more sinister than that to um, to kind of take the historical context. And so um, my guess is this plays out in enforcement in some kind of unfortunate ways as well. So um, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but tell me, did you, did you come across, what did you find as the role that uh, enforcement agencies play in this kind of issue? Well, after the Civil War, uh, states replaced slave patrols with police officers who enforced this thing called Black Codes. And uh, Black Codes kind of became a thing um, that Mississippi and South Carolina were the two first states to establish. Um, these codes were, to, were designed to control free men and free women and um, by making many activities that had previously been classified as like petty offenses are now big time offenses. And so um, we're entering into a time where serious crimes were committed by black adults and children are now initially declared by like President Nixon in 1973 and President Reagan who rededicated the United States to the war on drugs in 1982 um, that escalated through multiple strategies including increasing like anti-drug enforcement spending and uh, creating a federal drug task force that once upon a time ago was not a thing. Um, and this was helping foster a culture that uh, pretty much uh, declared like drug use and drug users as a, a terrible, terrible thing. And so in 2007, the number of arrests for drug possessions tripled. Um, and then also police forces and funding increased dramatically to support the war on drugs. Uh, so, for example, between 1992 and 2008, state and local exigentures on police doubled. And so it went from 131 per capita to 260 per capita. And uh, this just kind of kept increasing this federal, state, and local funding for law enforcement. Um, but the problem is that the law enforcement were frisking and, um, like I said before, kind of just having SWAT teams that would coming to drug homes without necessarily having any um, any real a document that would establish a, a relationship to say that this is something that you could do. And um, the United States just increased by 26% between 1992 and 2008 when it came to patrolling the streets and um, police officers um, and police had being more and more evident, um, of course, between like the war on drugs time. And so uh, this was facilitated by the increase in the scope of police power and resources. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just focuses on the, the two changes between the civil rights uh, war or the civil war and the civil rights movement to now the day and age of us dealing with police brutality. And it's continuing to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, and this is, I think this is building on some of the work uh, We've talked about in a, in another episode for this season of the podcast, but it's some of the work that uh, Michelle Alexander has done, pulling together the kind of um, yeah, yeah, I mean pulling together like as blacks begin getting more rights uh, legally, then the form of oppression just shifted to one through the criminal justice system rather than through slavery. Um, when you look at the numbers uh, of incarceration, um, they do seem to go up as um, blacks got more rights. Um, and so it seems and there is an, um, a, a logical intellectual uh, frame that is as... Um, 
as blacks begin getting more rights and access to property, that the way to take that back away from them in an era where slavery was no longer acceptable was to criminalize them as a as people. And so um, I think that is I think that's why um, it's not necessarily that the drug policy is irrational or naive, as we've talked about. It's just not about the drugs, mm-hmm. um, right? The policies aren't about, they're not trying to maximize um, safe, um, uh, they're not trying to maximize uh, peaceful living. Um, they're trying to use, it seems like there's evidence that these, these are um, tools used to oppress people. Um, and Nixon as uh, advisors as much said so um, and it's uh, you know, and in some ways the intention doesn't matter. All you have to really do is observe the outcome, and the outcome has been to take away the access to freedom and basic rights of an incredible amount of black men, in particular, right? I mean, decimated communities and families. That has been the outcome. Now, whether that was always the intention or not is sort of is maybe irrelevant in some ways because either way. It has extreme racial disparities and discrimination in the way in which we do the criminal justice system, but also as a direct function or related function, the way we think about drugs. So given that, what do we do? I mean, you know, out there, I have a suspicion of where you're going to go with this, but how do we, how do we have a responsible drug policy and what does a responsible drug policy even look like when you start making it about responsible with drug use? So I think a responsible move would be to address addiction as the disease that it is. It's not something that should be punished. It should be treated. Um, So addiction is something that doesn't just affect the individual, but it affects their families, their communities, so on and so forth. Um, So we we were looking into like trial treatment programs. So there's this um, this program established by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, so NIDA, and they have the Clinical Trials Network, which is CTN. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's uh, basically a network that allows uh, practitioners to kind of test out the most effective mechanisms for treating addiction and just like rewards them as being a part of that program and allowing they're like what they deem as their most effective things as they keep trying it out to be um like just not distributed but people learn from that and adapt and adopt them to their own practices so as a clinical trial i mean you're these individuals are not going to pay for it too so it's kind of a win-win there um yeah what else um something that like if we're going to solve the racial disparity problem or we're going to encourage some of our more uh, out there solutions, whether it's substitutes, whether it's, you know, providing the, f- uh, the funds for a nationwide addiction program and even just convincing everyone that, uh, you know, marijuana ought to be legalized. There's a philosophical conversation that needs to happen in the United States. Um, and it's one that people who uh, are aware, like let's, let, let's, at least on the West Coast, right, where we see the rise of microdosing and the experimenting with um, some of these uh, psychedelic drugs that have yielded some benefits for some people. Uh, the history of American propaganda surrounding all of these drugs, uh, whether it's inducing just, you know, a lust for blood as quotes about marijuana or the, the uh, different things that come, 
That's the common mindset in the United States surrounding drugs. Um, a lot of people have the conception that, you know, having a mind altering experience like this might be immoral in and of itself. Um, and so for people out there who know otherwise, who have experimented or, or seen the benefits of these things, um, unless people are willing to have the conversation that is less socially acceptable and, you know, talk to their families and talk to their friends about the benefits that some of these drugs have and the lack of drawbacks. I mean, it really is an uphill battle if you're if we were to change to a decriminalized policy in the United States uh, and, you know, then get to the issue of addressing the number of black men unjustly put in prison and seeing if uh, there's any way to you know reconcile and get these people back into society that have already been hurt. Um, these big philosophical conversations have to happen in families. Uh, people who feel passionate about leading the issue on both sides have to sit down and talk to each other. Uh, you know, drugs aren't going away, especially with uh, you know some of these hallucinogens like magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, peyote, uh, salvia. Any of these naturally occurring drugs are plants and seeds that, since the Columbian Exchange in the 14 and 1500s, are now all over the world as they've spread over America. Uh, none of these drugs can be eradicated unless we destroy every plant every seed. Sure, yeah. LSD can't be removed unless you get rid of the knowledge of LSD and burn the books and get rid of the people who know how to make it. Um, and so ultimately, uh, before most of our solutions can be brought into this world, uh, you know, the people on the West Coast who are trying those things anywhere that have, uh, you know, experimented with those drugs have to be willing to say the socially unacceptable things in a non-incriminating way because uh, these things are still illegal. Uh, so if we want to tackle the race issue or any of the drug-related issues, uh, really there just has to be a opening of framework. People need to hear the research. They need to know what these things are doing. They need to learn how some of these drugs have been used by indigenous communities in America for thousands and thousands of years. Um, so it's an uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, I, I like um, I like that frame court. I mean, one, one thing that um, I, I started doing some uh, researching into emerging technologies, and what what you what I found, which is the comment you make on drugs, which is these things are coming. There's no stopping them, right? Uh, that's the way science works. It's the way it's been since humans were able to conduct science, and so we can't prohibit it all over the world. These things are coming. And to your point, you can't eradicate, well, you could, um, but it's hard to eradicate entire plants. And you certainly can't eradicate the knowledge of how to arrange chemicals to create LSD, right? These things aren't going away. And so prohibiting them just doesn't make any sense. And people should recognize that and say that out loud over and over again. It doesn't make any sense. It's been about something else for a long time. Now we need to make it about it, make it about the drugs and making them have rational policies associated with them because this is decimating communities because we treat this um, in this way. And so I think rather than to what Kiri was saying, rather than kind of closing our eyes and saying, if we just ban these things, they're not happening. We have to come up with ways to get out in front of these things because the drugs aren't going away, just like these different types of chemical uh, mind altering experiences that are chemical drugs are not going away. And a lot of them can be made easily and simply by scientists already, right? And so we need to have honest conversations in society 
that are like adults, that aren't like how we do a lot of things in the U.S. where we just have this uh, sort of naive or childlike approach to it that, oh, drugs are bad, let's ban them. You know, we really, for, for strong ethical reasons, we need to move past these things. Um, so I, it's, it, and it's, it's fun, it's kind of interesting to even talk about it, and I can see it uh, on the faces in the room, uh, not that the listener can see, but even talking about this, people, because of the culture of it in Texas, feels weird, right? And Court was mentioning that some of these way out there solutions, way out there solutions include things like what Portugal is doing that there's been success for. And so we have to quit thinking of these things as way out there solutions, even though culturally they are because they don't, they're not grounded in science and evidence. We now have, we now understand more about how the brain works to know this isn't the when ex, uh, extensive drug use is an addiction and we need to treat it as an addiction, not just to put people in jail. And we need to think about what type of mind altering uh, experiences we want to elect government regulate. Some of that seems a little weird. Um, okay, we're getting at the 45 minute mark and I've been doing a lot of the discussing here for the last couple of minutes. So let me give you a kind of a final chance that anyone wants to jump in that uh, to kind of have your final thoughts as you work through this project and did this research on the war on drugs and tried to think through what are rational drug policies and how to minimize the harm done to, say, the U.S. by drugs and potentially expand any potential benefits they might have. I mean, it's sort of culture so that people have a glass of wine at the end of a long week or two glasses, right? You could think about similar benefits from other drugs that are less addictive and less harmful. So what, uh, after waiting into this for maybe six or eight weeks, what do, uh, what would you like to leave the listeners with? Sure. Um, so I think the big thing is to just be open-minded about these things and to have these honest conversations and realize that what we've been doing hasn't been working. So maybe we need to come up with some innovative things that are something that someone hasn't tried before and learn some lessons from other countries to kind of change our approach to these things. Um, a few other things that we thought of were maybe looking at the Controlled Substances Act because that was something that we've been using for a long time. Maybe we need to look at that and kind of revamp that. Just things that no one's thought of yet, or maybe it's just something that we're not ready to invest in, but like now would be the time to invest. Mm -hmm. You can't repair damage done, but you can improve the future for people that have to deal with this. And exactly, like going through history, we know that prohibition hasn't worked, that it's been used as a targeting method um, due to culture and lack of education surrounding these drugs and we should be employing strategy of prevention of misuse of drugs and um, and that all stems from a better education and it obviously it's hard to change a culture around drugs but when you look at other cultures who use some of these drugs for religious purposes and things like that to you know change the, the mind um, you could really just and the truth is it is changing, right? I mean, as you see polls about the acceptability of drug use and recreational drug use and decriminalization of it, the trends are, uh, particularly among millennials, um, are pretty in favor of these new types of legislations. Um, it's the, those groups don't necessarily have power in society at this point in time. I mean, I think the current Attorney General Jeff Sessions, as we record this, sort of highlights a big both cultural and generational divide. I mean, it's, his comment on cannabis was good people don't do marijuana. Um, and you can even, that says a lot, right? Like it says a lot about how that policy was constructed 
it's clearly has some tones in there, right? And so you can, it's completely irrational. Um, we know that's not true, but that's also trying to reinforce those old stereotypes of, well, that's what these groups of people do, and those are not, right? And so there's definitely some of that here. Um, well, I encourage um, listeners to go research this. The evidence is out there. Um, the first podcast was of the public problems podcast was on medical cannabis legislation because I think this is one of the major ethical issues of our generation. Um, and there seems to finally be enough of a wave behind uh, these ideas and pro- approaching them logically and using empirical based evidence to maybe change this. And so don't take our words for it. I mean, go research it for yourself and try to think about it logically and, um, and rationally. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing your report with us. Um, and uh, maybe we can find an excuse to do this again sometime. <laughs> Thank right. you, Dr. Bullock. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Season 2 of the Public Problems Podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so by sharing the episodes with your friends, family, students, and liking our page and following along as we do live events. You can also support the Public Problems Podcast financially by subscribing to the podcast at justinbullock.org slash subscribe or by clicking the Shop Now button on our Facebook page. Here you can pick any monthly subscription or single donation amount that you'd like to contribute. Any support is greatly appreciated. I very much believe in this podcast and its content and hope to make it more visible and have more time to spend on it in the future. Thank you very much.